Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, we begin a three-part series on the House of Hohenstaufen, starting with Frederick Barbarossa. This will be the second Barbarossa I've profiled on the podcast. No relation. Despite the confusion that may cause, I will still refer to Frederick as Barbarossa throughout this episode, mostly because his grandson is also named Frederick, and he has no cool nickname. At least, not one that rolls off the tongue. Barbarossa was the Holy Roman Emperor in the 12th century. He forced his way into the imperial office and then forced the office back into relevance after a century or so of decline. He was an incredibly energetic leader, a strong general and politician, and he expanded the power of his empire, and he's considered one of the greatest of the Holy Roman Emperors. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 9, Episode 7, Hohenstaufen Part 1, Frederick Barbarossa, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Barbarossa was born in 1122 in the Duchy of Swabia, a southwestern piece of the Kingdom of Germany, itself a piece of the Holy Roman Empire. His parents were Duke Frederick II of Swabia and his wife Judith, a daughter of the Duke of Bavaria. When he was growing up in the middle of the 12th century, the Viking Age had ended, although to the north of the empire lay Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. To the east was Poland, the Kievan Rus, who were in a period of decline and fragmentation, and Hungary, which had grown in territory by absorbing Croatia in a personal union. Speaking of decline, the Byzantines were losing territory to their neighbors, which included the Seljuk Turks, while David the Builder created a powerful united Georgia at the turn of the century. East of them, the Khwarazmian Empire ruled over much of today's Iran and Transoxiana. The Fatimids in Egypt were weak and would be taken over by Saladin's Ayyubid dynasty before the century was over. Speaking of Saladin, the Crusader states had been established in the Levant in the very last few years of the previous century. The Almohads took over southern Spain and Morocco from the Almoravids further west. To their south, the Ghana Empire had faded, the Gao Empire was powerful, and the Mali Empire was still in its nascent stage. Makuria and Elodia remained powerful kingdoms in the Upper Nile, while Ethiopia was in a transitional period for much of the century. Further east, the Ghaznavids were making way for the Gurads in the Ganges, Punjab, and eventually Helmand River valleys, while southern India remained fractured between dozens of Hindu kingdoms. Continuing east, the Pagan kingdom was nearing a zenith, while the Khmer Empire completed Angkor Wat by the middle of the century. The Song Dynasty was pushed to the south of China by the Jin Dynasty, and to their north, the Mongols wouldn't be united under Genghis Khan until the beginning of the next century. Chimor was the dominant power in the Andean region, and further north, Mesoamerica was in a period of strong city-states, 
while the League of Mayapan was the power on the Yucatan. And to the north, the Middle Mississippian culture's massive city of Cahokia was at its peak. Back across the Atlantic, David I brought the Norman way of life to Scotland, while England was going through the anarchy that resulted in Plantagenet rule by the middle of the century, really starting up the rivalry with France, although the Hundred Years' War was still about a hundred years in the future. The Kingdom of the Franks was attempting to become more centralized, and by the end of the century the monarch would actually call himself the King of France, not the Franks. Leon and Castile entered the century united, then split, Portugal was growing, and took Lisbon during the Second Crusade as the Reconquista was in full swing. Roger II was crowned King of Sicily in 1130 after uniting the island with the southern Italian peninsula, and to the north of Sicily was Rome and the Papal States. North of that, you get to the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire can be traced back to Charlemagne, crowned in 800 AD in Rome, the original founder of an empire with significant lands in modern Germany. But let's be clear, the Carolingian Empire of Charlemagne was not really the same as the Holy Roman Empire, just like neither was the same as the ancient Roman Empire. Charlemagne's empire did not last long, divided as it was among his sons. Eventually, in the latter half of the 10th century, an empire was created that united much of the eastern part of Charlemagne's original empire by Otto the Great, Season 1, Episode 6. His coronation in 962 is the other traditional founding date of the empire, and this German-centered empire is what continued on for many centuries. The borders of this empire shifted and can be argued over, but it was bigger than modern Germany, and it included multiple kingdoms. The Kingdom of Germany was the leading constituent kingdom at the time. In the northwest, it reached as far as the Scheldt and Meuse rivers, meaning it held most of Belgium and the Netherlands, and parts of eastern France. The Rhine River Valley in the west was not near the kingdom's border, it was the heartland. Upper and Lower Lorraine were in the west, and moving east, Germany reached the North Sea through its northern duchy of Saxony. South of that, in the center of the kingdom, were Franconia and Thuringia. Eastern lands included Lusitania, Bohemia, Austria, and Carinthia. Bavaria, to the south of Franconia and Bohemia, stretched nearly to the Adriatic Sea in the south. Finally, west of Bavaria was Swabia, and it included such eternally German locations as Alsace and Zurich. Germany was not the only kingdom within the empire, though. That's part of the reason why Germany and the empire are two different things. It also included the Kingdom of Burgundy, which itself included Provence, Savoy, Geneva, and the County of Burgundy, not the Duchy of Burgundy, which just refer to all of Season 6, okay? And the last constituent kingdom of the empire, which Charlemagne first conquered and then Otto reconquered, was the Kingdom of Italy. Italy in this case really means Northern Italy. Central Italy was, at times, part of the Papal States, and southern Italy was part of the Kingdom of Sicily that Roger II pulled together in Season 3, Episode 5. Roger will be name-checked again soon enough. After Otto's time, though, central authority weakened within the Empire. The Pope was a big part of this. The investiture controversy may seem like an esoteric religious argument, but it served to undermine the Emperor's authority, causing civil war in Germany 
and establishing the Holy See as a place that could shift the balance of secular power with its religious authority. German princes, the dukes and other territorial leaders, were constantly at odds with one another, and more and more they put limits to the emperor's power. A culture and ethnicity coalesced over the centuries, but it was not united, as each of the duchies felt they had authority in their home turf. Despite their powers, the king was still the king, and that held authority in itself. Meanwhile, in Italy, some aristocratic landholders held sway, but it was actually the cities, or communes, that caused the most trouble, demanding rights and privileges in the dawn of the era of Italian city-states. As Marcel Pacot writes in his biography, Frederick Barbarossa, quote, It was the growth of the cities that brought about the spirit of independence. They formed a dense web of commercial centers and were traditionally the home of Italy's richest and most influential men, unquote. He cites the revival of Mediterranean trade as the cause, which not only brought wealth, but attracted artisans, who in turn increased trade and wealth. The problem was that while kings and emperors wanted these things, they couldn't actually control them. Picot sums the issues up with this, quote, By 1152, while the emperor still wielded nominal power over his possessions in Germany and Italy, he lacked the means to enforce his authority or to administer his provinces, unquote. Now, the emperor wasn't some schmo they pulled out of nowhere. Some of his authority came from his own power base outside of being the emperor. But there was quite a bit more negotiation needed to accomplish much as an emperor than the title suggests. At the beginning of the 12th century, Barbarossa's grandfather Frederick was a count in Swabia and didn't support the Duke of Swabia at the time, who was named as an anti-king in Germany. The original king came out victorious and named the grandfather as the new Duke of Swabia. Grandpa Fred had built a house on Stofen Hill, and a newly named dynasty was born. His son ruled as Duke Frederick II in the first half of the 12th century, and had a son, our Frederick Barbarossa, in 1122. In 1125, when the emperor died, Daddy, Duke Frederick, stood for election, but lost. A rivalry was born, though, between the House of Hohenstaufen and the House of Welf, supporters of the new king, Lothair. Frederick II's brother Conrad, taking advantage of support across the Alps, was crowned king of Italy, though eventually they all relented and submitted to the emperor. When the emperor died in 1137, Conrad made a comeback as the rallying point for the princes aligned with the Hohenstaufen. He was elected king of Germany in March of 1138 and began consolidating his power. He had his son Henry crowned as his successor in 1147, before leaving for the Second Crusade. Barbarossa, meanwhile, grew up in Swabia, learning the knightly arts, if you will. Besides hunting, riding, and sword fighting, he undoubtedly studied politics under his well-connected father, although he never learned Latin. He was illiterate, which may seem unsurprising, but if it was ever intended that he might someday be a king, he would have been taught how to read and speak Latin. In 1147, he married, and he inherited the Duchy of Swabia when his father died. And then he joined his uncle, the King of Germany, on the ill-fated Second Crusade. 
After attempting to cross Anatolia overland and being thoroughly trounced by the Seljuk Turks, they returned to Constantinople and sailed to the Levant, where they marched to Damascus and failed to capture the city after significant infighting. The young man sat in on many of the councils with the king and was able to, for lack of a better term, start networking with the other leading German magnates. He also proved his courage on the field of battle to them and the king. After returning to Germany, the Hohenstaufen and Welf rivalry flared up, and Conrad, as well as his 14-year-old son and co-king Henry, were back at war on their home turf. Henry helped defeat a Welf attack in Swabia in 1150, but died soon after. And then Conrad himself died on the 15th of February, 1152. A new king would need to be elected. Now Conrad had another son, who was only six at the time, but Barbarossa was by the king's side when he died. He claimed Conrad had recommended him for the crown, and he essentially campaigned for the job. When the electors of Germany assembled, they chose the Duke of Swabia, Frederick Barbarossa, rather than the dead king's young son, to be their next king. John Fried, in his book Frederick Barbarossa, The Prince and the Myth, wrote, quote, He was an accidental king, since it was unprecedented for even a minor son of a regnant king to be bypassed, the hasty election on 4 March 1152 of Frederick, rather than Conrad's younger son, has all the earmarks of a coup d'etat, unquote. Now, a few things to note here. First, this is some evidence that the crown wasn't strictly based on primogeniture, as Conrad's other son would have been the next in line of succession. Two, it probably reflects the overall fatigue of the German princes between the rivalry. Barbarossa was also part Welf, as his mom Judith was the sister of Henry the Lion, the leading Welf magnate. And the Welf seemed to be okay with him, impressed by his actions during the crusade and no doubt his Welfish blood. He was a compromise candidate, it seems, and Barbarossa was not afraid to champion himself. He was duly elected in Frankfurt in March, and his coronation was held a few days later in the traditional site of Aachen, where he was technically crowned as King of the Romans, although that's confusing and I'll try not to say it again. Now the German king, he could envision himself as Holy Roman Emperor, which included Italy and Burgundy. But first, he had to make sure Germany was in good shape. Actually, Burgundy sort of came with the German crown. It was a part of the Holy Roman Empire, and whoever was king of the Romans got to be king of Burgundy, or Arles, too. Back to Germany, where he had some issues. Barbarossa didn't have a great number of close familial supporters that ruled huge territories, outside his family in Swabia, and his allies, the Welfs. So he essentially started his reign with a sort of reform. It declared peace across the realm, good work if you can get it, and basically made internal squabbling illegal. With some amount of support to actually enforce this, it appears he did reduce the lawlessness within his kingdom. And he showed some political acumen by giving up the Duchy of Swabia to his young cousin, Conrad's son, which reduced his own power. Legally, at least. His cousin was young enough that Barbarossa was still the authority there. And he gave an olive branch to the Welfs, by giving Welf VI lands in northern Italy and supporting Henry the Lion's claims in Bavaria. One more thing on the home front, though. 
Barbarossa was able to get the Pope to annul his marriage. Apparently, his marriage was not a happy one. It produced no children, and by March of 1153, it was conveniently found that they were too closely related, so the king was a single man again. This was all part of ongoing discussions with the Pope. Gotta get that imperial crown from Rome, after all. Also in March, the Treaty of Constance was signed, which, in addition to being a mutual defense treaty aimed at the Byzantines, he promised not to ally with Sicily against the Pope. He also promised to help against ongoing rebellion in the Eternal City, and some other minutiae that the Pope would try and use to tell Barbarossa he had to listen to everything the Holy See told him. In October of 1154, the King of Germany set out to Italy, which was in theory his kingdom as well, with an army. His German magnates wished him luck, but they didn't gather a mass of forces to help him out. It's important to understand that they didn't really see this as their fight, helping their king get the imperial crown and assert more authority in Italy. According to Pocot, quote, it was a small enough party, more in the nature of a royal escort than an army bent on military conquest. Hardly had they crossed the Alps when difficulties arose. Near Verona, the royal party was attacked by armed bands. Henceforth, the Germans were obliged to avoid the cities, unquote. He ended up in Roncaglia, a village near the city of Piacina. He spent the winter meeting with Italian nobles, agreeing upon traditional relationships, lordly-type things. He then marched further into Italy, which some of the powerful cities were cool with, and some were not so much. Milan made threatening Italian hand gestures at Barbarossa and told him to stay away. By this time, there was a new pope, Adrian IV, who was disinclined toward friendship with the king. However, the people of Rome were threatening him, and the violence was getting bad, and the Pope was being even less friendly to Sicily, not yet acknowledging Roger II's replacement, William. So Sicily, the part in southern Italy, started attacking papal territory. That spring, Barbarossa was offered the Iron Crown of Lombardy by the traditional capital city of the Kingdom of Italy, Pavia. Pavia was in a territorial dispute with another commune, which happened to be an ally of Milan, and Barbarossa besieged the rival, sacking it in April. He moved on to Pavia afterward, and received his official coronation as King of Italy, before marching on to Rome. Pope Adrian had just fled the Roman mob, and the presence of the Germans threw him into a full-blown tizzy, ladies and gentlemen, fearing the new triple king would side with the Roman citizens. But the leader of the Roman commune, a priest, was captured by German troops and handed over to the Pope, giving the German-Italian king the appreciation of the Holy See and the hatred of the Roman people. By June, the Pope and Barbarossa met in person. Now, Barbarossa apparently didn't kowtow enough initially, and his popeliness was annoyed, but with enough of the proper type of simpering, everybody seemed to make up. German troops then marched into the city, and on June 18, 1155, Frederick Barbarossa had his imperial coronation. The Pope handed him all the accoutrements of office, and he became the new Holy Roman Emperor. His imperial reign started off with a confrontation, as the Romans, possibly in more of a riot than a coordinated attack, descended upon the Leonine city. 
That is to say, the Vatican across the Tiber from the city of Rome, surrounded by the Leonine walls. The attack was repulsed, but both Pope and Emperor decided, no, on second thought, let's not stay in the Vatican. It's a silly place. By September, Barbarossa had crossed back over the Alps, and the next year, he married an heiress, which was nice. His new wife Beatrice was the Countess of Burgundy, which was part of his empire in the Kingdom of Burgundy. It bordered on his home duchy of Swabia, so they were neighbors. Barbarossa married her on June 9th, giving him co-rule as count in addition to all his other titles. This, by the way, is the region eventually known as Franche Comte, part of the empire rather than the duchy of Burgundy, part of France. You season six heads know what I'm talking about. It also gave him additional troops and easy access to a more westerly route into Italy. That year, though, surprising news reached the emperor, that the pope had signed a treaty with William of Sicily. Okay, so the pope had never, unlike Barbarossa, promised not to ally with Sicily, but it was kind of implied. Now the Pope would be less beholden to the Empire since he had other friends. So be it, Barbarossa still needed to assert his authority over northern Italy. First, though, in 1157, he marched east into Poland where his aunt, the half-sister of the former King Conrad, was married to Grand Duke Boleslaw. Barbarossa helped resolve some of the disputes over succession there and returned with promises of support for an Italian campaign making Poland a tributary, if not an actual constituent part, of the Holy Roman Empire. Meanwhile, as he prepped for his next excursion south, he got into a tiff with the Pope, who was mad at him about something, and proceeded to remind him that he was, after all, only an emperor at his holiness's discretion. Which, in some ways, was true. In other ways, the Pope was still only around as the Pope at the Emperor's discretion. So... Maybe not a good way to kick off a lifelong friendship. I don't think the details are important, but a few things came to light as a result. The first was the papal authority was beginning to fear the empire being too powerful and thought that their best bet might be to not only ally with the Sicilians, but with the opposition in northern Italy as well. The second was that Barbarossa wasn't about to sheepishly acquiesce to anything the Pope demanded. This was helped out by a third thing, which was that the German clergy was much more inclined to side with Barbarossa than with Rome. In the summer of 1158, the emperor left Germany with a much larger army, calling in favors, but also making promises to people like the Duke of Bohemia in order to get him to come with a bunch of troops. After crossing the Alps, Italian allies joined him, and together they headed straight to Milan, which he besieged. It didn't take long for the city to surrender, and Barbarossa was pretty charitable, demanding fines and taking away privileges, but leaving the city in relative peace. That year, he declared that essentially all regalia in Italy, and by this I don't mean crowns and mantles and scepters, but rather official rights and privileges, would be removed and bestowed upon his imperial person. A bit harsh, but he had done something similar in Germany, and in the age of feudalism, these privileges led to massive de-evolution of power. So, for example, it makes sense that the sovereign of the kingdom had the royal right to make coins, and nuts to anyone else. But over time, various barons, or municipalities, in the case of Italy, the communes, 
were granted those rights in exchange for loyal service or favor, or in the case of coins, probably loans. Now, in a show of magnanimity, Barbarossa said that anyone who had written proof that these rights had been granted previously could retain said regalia. For the communes, this was good news, as they had much of the paperwork needed. For the big cities, who sometimes superseded the communes they were a part of, acting with higher levels of authority, it wasn't so easy. The cities were growing in power because of wealthy merchants, traders, and craftsmen, not because they knew the third cousin of the king. They acted on their own, so they had no permission to do things because they didn't really need it. At least not until now. This served to cause further strife between the empire and the increasingly independent-minded cities. Really, what he was doing was trying to give more power to the most important nobles, who were, for the most part, the easiest allies for him to make. He also issued what is considered by many to be the first university charter. For a little over half a century, Bologna had become a gathering place for scholars across Europe. But many being foreigners, and many being serfs, their rights to just live and study in the city weren't guaranteed. Barbarossa fixed that. Anyway, intercity rivalries continued in Italy, and the emperor found himself in the middle of one when his ally Cremona got into it with the commune of Milan's ally Crema. He besieged Crema, and while it took him six months, the small city finally capitulated, and it was razed to the ground and looted, although its surviving inhabitants were first allowed to leave. These battles were really the first in what is sometimes called the Wars of the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. The first word actually comes from those allied with the Pope, named after the German Welf dynasty, Guelph being an Italian pronunciation. The second is from a Hohenstaufen possession, the German town of Ibelingen, also mispronounced south of the Alps, this time as Ghibelline. Not that I'm pronouncing it correctly. Tensions with the papacy grew as the Pope moved closer to alliances with the northern Italian cities opposed to Barbarossa and the emperor began fomenting unrest in papal lands, including Rome. Then, Pope Adrian died. A controversy ensued, Pope Alexander III being elected by the majority of cardinals, but several cardinals and the Roman populace siding with a man who proclaimed himself Pope Victor IV. Barbarossa supported Victor, although he pretended he was an impartial observer, he held a synod with a collection of allied churchmen and, surprise, ruled in favor of Victor. Then they crowned each other and became best friends. Oh, and then Pope Alexander excommunicated them both. Most other European kingdoms sided with Alexander. The following year, once more troops arrived from Germany, the emperor began his offensive in Lombardy. He started with his most troublesome ally, Milan. He offered harsh terms, they resisted, and a siege followed which didn't end until March of 1162. The city was sacked, although it seems that most of the inhabitants were allowed to leave first. With the destruction of Milan, all the Italian cities returned to the imperial bosom, as it were. Not that, mind you, their goal was really to leave the empire. Independent-minded in the 12th century meant they wanted to be part of the empire, to be ruled by Barbarossa, and to be completely and 100% left alone. Give them all the rights and privileges, defend them if needed, let them use the imperial roads and trade routes, but otherwise leave them alone. Basically, they were teenagers. 
With northern Italy all taken care of, he began to prepare to move further south. First, he'd take Rome and install Pope Victor there. Then he'd just continue right along and take the kingdom of Sicily. They, after all, had been an antagonist ever since the popes decided to start allying with Palermo and pushing him away. He even made treaties with Pisa and Genoa to help him ship soldiers there. But the northern Italian cities, feeling oppressed under their newly present overlord, found a way to oppose him by supporting Alexander. By 1164, Venice, which was not part of his empire, had become openly hostile to his plans to march into Rome, notwithstanding his alliances with Pisa and Genoa. They started funding rebellion in the other northern cities, and once again Lombardy wasn't so under his control. He tried to attack Verona, one of Venice's allies, but without support from his Italian cities, he wasn't successful and didn't have the manpower to just easily raise more armies. He returned to Germany in time to hear about the death of his Pope, Victor. A new anti-pope was elected, Pascal, and Barbarossa lent his support, this time without bothering to consult with his own leading bishops, which was an important step, even if it was purely theater. This led to more defections to the side of Alexander, which was essentially away from the emperor. Barbarossa returned to Italy in late 1166 to continue teaching everyone there to behave themselves, this time because the Pope was threatening to ally with Constantinople. He marched with ease toward the allied city of Lodi and held court there. He besieged Ancona, which had a Byzantine, yes Byzantine, garrison. The Eastern Roman Empire wasn't directly involved in many of the events on the peninsula, but they still believed they had a right to it and were happy to help the Pope against Barbarossa. The possible alliance with Rome was tempting for them. But he abandoned the siege after a few of his lords took out a Roman army sent to fight him outside the town of Tusculum, which papal forces were besieging. Suddenly the road to Rome was open, and he decided to head that way. He began a siege, but also played a political card. He suggested that both popes should abdicate, and a new one would be chosen. Pope Alexander, of course, refused, which gave Barbarossa the cover he needed. All this violence could have been prevented, but Alexander was too selfish to allow it. The Romans, fearing destruction of their city, now forced Alexander to flee for his safety from them, and Barbarossa was able to take the holy city. He installed his guy Pascal as Pope in Rome, and the new fake Pope once again crowned Barbarossa as Holy Roman Emperor on August 1st, just in case anyone missed it the first time. Barbarossa was feeling pretty confident, set up in the Eternal City with his own Pope. Italy was his. Except... Except a day later, a massive storm blew through, the sewers overflowed, and a plague quickly spread throughout the city. Several of his closest advisors, relatives, died during the ensuing sickness, including a wealth and that cousin he had ruling Swabia. Marching north, he was back in Pavia in September, and he looked, at the very least, unimpressive all of a sudden, and worse, it looked like maybe God didn't approve of his papal messing. While he stood in Pavia, his emboldened enemies in northern Italy, 16 cities in fact, banded together to form the Lombard League. This group swore to fight together as one for independence, and by independence they meant still being a part of the Holy Roman Empire, but like the way it was under the emperors who never came to visit. With his own army devastated by the plague and his Italian allies abandoning him, 
Barbarossa decided to head back home for a while and regroup and come up with a new plan. Heading to Burgundy, he tried to stop at the town of Susa, which wouldn't let him in, sending him running for the border. There he found that most of the bishops in his kingdom of Burgundy had sided with Alexander, so he beat feet straight back to Germany. Home again, he set about increasing his authority in northern Europe. He would spend the next six years there, making moves to solidify his own power. His vassals like Henry the Lion ruled massive territories themselves, and his presence kept them in line. The emperor got his four-year-old son Henry elected as king of the Romans. There it is again. Henry was crowned co-king of Germany, ensuring that the succession would stay in the Hohenstaufen family. He got another young son to be named Duke of Swabia, pulling that large source of power back under his direct control. He also marched back into Poland after some turmoil there to once again remind them about their duties to provide him with cash or whatever. And he reached out to Manuel in Constantinople, turning down the heat on that conflict. This was time well spent. But in 1174, he marched back into Italy, with an army in tow, of course. The Lombard League was acting up again. They had strengthened their alliance in his absence, and now that he was back, they would stand firm against him. First, though, he burned the town of Susa, the one that hadn't let him in on his way out of Italy in 1168. The emperor was able to gather forces from the few supporting Italian cities, and he besieged the new town of Alessandria. This city was a sore spot for Barbarossa, essentially founded by the Lombard League to resist him, and named after the Pope to boot. He laid siege over the winter, but camp disease forced him to abandon it before being able to take the city, a big victory for the League. Barbarossa didn't have a huge force with him, and after his failed siege, he'd have to be smart about what he did. They began with negotiations. In reality, it was really a list of demands presented to the Emperor. Things like city regalia rights, rights to have the Lombard League existing at all. But importantly, they also noted that Barbarossa was their rightful sovereign, and they acknowledged he had rights as their emperor. Anyway, he rejected the terms. A counterproposal drafted by the friendly to the empire city of Cremona was rejected by the League, so we were at an impasse. War was coming, and with limited forces, Barbarossa practically begged Henry the Lion to come down with some of his Bavarian soldiers and Saxon knights. Henry the Lion refused, saying he didn't care about this Italy business, causing a breach between the two men. Barbarossa did get some reinforcements from Germany, although not as many as he expected. Marching with his army of something like 3,000, most of these were German knights, Barbarossa was set upon by a Lombard army that exceeded 10,000 near the town of Legnano. Although initially successful in charging with his knights and breaking up the enemy army, which was essentially a large militia, the emperor soon encountered fierce resistance. The Lombard infantry was able to form a defensive wall around their carroccio, which was essentially a wagon that held the city symbols, the Roman eagle of the day in some ways. Remarkably, although he smashed through a few lines of defenders, the infantry managed to keep steady despite charge after charge. Eventually, their comrades on horseback who had fled the first attacks returned, and Barbarossa was suddenly getting it from multiple sides. His horse was killed from under him, and he and his army had to flee in disarray. It was rumored that he had been killed himself, 
but he did return to Pavia safely. This battle was historically significant, not just because how it affected the empire in Italy, but because it was one of the earliest demonstrations of infantry, essentially local militia no less, holding their own against honest-to-goodness medieval knights. Although, it was the return of their own cavalry that sealed the deal. With no good military options, Barbarossa had to move back to the negotiating table. And the one thing he really didn't want to do, more than anything else, had to be done. He recognized Pope Alexander's authority, which was, you know, pretty embarrassing for the emperor. After that, He signed a peace treaty in Venice, which basically said nobody would fight anymore, although some privileges were still left kind of vague. And while this certainly stemmed from a defeat for Barbarossa, it forced him to shift his approach and policy. And that, in turn, opened up new avenues of success. So what did the now unexcommunicated emperor do the next year? He toured all around Italy like some sort of conquering hero. Hey, no hard feelings, everyone. Sure, you almost killed me, killed my favorite horse, but that's all water under the bridge, because the boss is back. And it seems like he was well-received, which just goes to show how much people still revered the emperor, despite trying to kill him. Later that year, he went to Burgundy and had a coronation ceremony. This wasn't something Holy Roman Emperors did. The Kingdom of Arles, or Burgundy, just kind of came with the package. But he wanted to demonstrate something, that he was the sovereign. This was a PR campaign. By the end of 1178, he reached Germany and immediately turned his attention to his former pal, Henry the Lion, the one who wouldn't send reinforcements while Barbarossa was getting his behind handed to him in Lombardy. 20 years of alliance down the drain. He set about bringing Henry up on legal charges, and by early 1179, held a trial where other Saxon lords accused Henry of starting wars, which, you know, was banned. By the summer, Henry was banned. When Henry refused to answer to what had happened, he was put on trial for treason. He attended none of the proceedings, so it's not surprising that, by 1180, he was convicted of that, and all his lands were forfeit. As Picot puts it, quote, Frederick had thus skillfully eliminated his rival in strict accordance with feudal law and with the full approval of his princes, unquote. The Duchy of Saxony was given to one prince, and the Duchy of Bavaria was given to his close ally and advisor, Otto of Wittelsbach. The House of Wittelsbach would rule over Bavaria until 1918, and Sophia of Hanover, of the same house, would become heir presumptive to her cousin Anne's crown, although it was her son George who would end up inheriting it, and becoming the King of Great Britain in the 18th century. Henry, of course, did not sit calmly through all of this and raised an army. Unfortunately for him, most of his pals were happy to see him go, and he got little support. Barbarossa took his own allied army into Saxony, where Henry found himself outnumbered and outclassed. The emperor took Lübeck and other towns, and in 1181, Henry threw himself at Barbarossa's feet, begging for mercy. Given a few meager territories as recompense, and then exiled, he fled to England. Germany did suffer a bit, as Henry, a powerful lord, was holding enemies at bay. Denmark soon invaded and took much of Pomerania, that is, the southern Baltic coastlands east of Denmark. Barbarossa probably shrugged at the loss of these untamed wild lands. He used this time to expand his own territories, 
although it should be noted that his hold on Germany as king and emperor was not as strong as he would have liked. The princes of the empire, despite what happened to Henry, held significant power, and the feudal system was being further entrenched, rather than consolidated into a royal system. Germany was moving further down the path of a disunited empire that would last until the 19th century, rather than inching closer to the nation-states that would eventually surround it. Italy, meanwhile, still demanded attention, and after some negotiations, he hammered out the Treaty of Constance with the Lombard League. This finally put an end to hostilities, as the previous treaty was really more of a truce. The details can be arcane, but the upshot was, Barbarossa confirmed all the regalia to the cities, but in doing so, stated that he was the one who granted it to them. They swore loyalty, and he said they could do the things that they'd been hankering to do. They had the rights, but only because he, their divine emperor, and his son, Henry, king of the Romans, had granted them those rights. In perpetuity. Nobody probably loved the outcome, but everybody kind of got what they wanted, so, you know, that's a compromise. Improved relations with Sicily followed as well, no doubt helped by the death of Pope Alexander III, who had always kept the two parties at bay. Sicily feared Byzantine plans in southern Italy and were happy to be on friendly terms with Barbarossa, especially if it kept the Germans out of southern Italy too. The emperor, for his part, had always coveted southern Italy himself, but he found a new way of trying to get a hold of it. As part of the negotiations with Palermo, he got his son Henry engaged to Constance, the aunt of the king of Sicily. She was also the daughter of King Roger II of Sicily, who had died over two decades earlier. It was a long shot, but it would pay off. An argument with the Pope over the approval of a bishop came to a head when the old Pope died and a new one, Urban III, came in and acted against Barbarossa. The Emperor marched up to Milan, where he was now welcome, by the way, and held a wedding for his son Henry and Constance without the Pope's consent. Because who needs the Pope anyway? The Pope was angry at not being invited or something and started fermenting rebellion. He told German clergy to revolt, same with some Italian cities that had been annoyed by the emperor. Pope Urban, however, was holed up in Verona because Rome wasn't safe for him, and since the northern Italian cities were happily reunited with the emperor, he didn't have a huge force to defend him. Barbarossa marched to the city and cut off all supply to Verona. He had his son, Henry IV, invade the Papal States. He calmed the Italian cities that were annoyed at him, and he marched up to Germany to deal with some of those bishop approval issues. The German bishops, of course, sided with Barbarossa, as always, except for one. The Archbishop of Cologne, the most important city, certainly in Western Germany, was openly supporting Pope Urban and continuing calls for rebellion against the emperor. Barbarossa marched on Cologne, the Archbishop relented, and the Pope, unwilling to negotiate, instead resolved the issue by dying. By 1188, not only had the new Pope agreed to most of Barbarossa's requests, he had actually been escorted back into the Eternal City by King Henry IV. So things were good. Italy was calm. Sicily was an ally. And the Germans, while not exactly willing to do whatever he asked, were loyal and able to give him what he needed. Thirty-plus years after his coronation as king, he probably felt like he had done most of what he wanted. It was around this time that the 65-year-old Holy Roman Emperor received word from the East. 
the Sultan of Egypt and Syria, Saladin, had basically destroyed the largest crusader state, the Kingdom of Jerusalem. A panic swept across the West, and everyone asked the Emperor to go help out. Even the kings of France and England had agreed to a truce with each other in order to launch the Third Crusade. Barbarossa got the Pope to crown his son Henry as Holy Roman Emperor and set off once again to the Holy Land. His experience in the Second Crusade was invaluable. He taxed the Jews of his realm to help fund it, but forbid any violence against them, even sending the Imperial Marshal to prevent mob violence in Mainz and meeting with the city's head rabbi, thus preventing the massacres at home that had featured in the previous two crusades. He also planned to march overland, but with negotiations for friendly passage ahead of him, another lesson from the Second Crusade. Without a major fleet of his own, it would have been too expensive to pay one of his northern Italian cities like Genoa to sail him to the Holy Land, especially considering Saladin might have captured all the ports by the time he arrived. Gathering an army of maybe 20,000 men in Regensburg, he set out in 1189, first through Hungary, where his earlier negotiations allowed for safe passage. He even was able to add to his army with Hungarian soldiers. Serbia too proved safe until he got to the border where the Bulgars and Serb tribesmen attacked. He found the Eastern Roman Empire to be quite distrustful, and that they had actually signed a secret treaty with Saladin to stay out of the conflict. He marched into Philippopolis in Thrace, one of the largest Byzantine cities, and took it, before then taking another important city, Adrianople. This was not so much of a conquest, it was more of a march that included stopping wherever he wanted and reprovisioning his army, although he certainly considered just going on and taking Constantinople. The Byzantine emperor Isaac II decided it would probably be a good idea to negotiate, and after some exchanges of promises and hostages, the two eventually signed a treaty in early 1190. Safely making his way into Anatolia, he marched toward what was supposed to be friendly territory. But the Sultan of Rum that Barbarossa had negotiated with had died, and the new Turkish Sultan was now allied with Saladin. Turkish harassment and attacks surprised the Germans. Fighting their way to Iconium in southern Anatolia, Barbarossa decided rather than bypass the city and hightail it to Cilicia, his army was too tired and hungry to continue marching. They engaged the Turks, and Barbarossa's son Frederick, the Duke of Swabia, led one of the main forces. They took the city and routed an army outside it. They sacked Iconium, and the Germans were resupplied. The Sultan capitulated and agreed to allow the Crusaders to pass through his territory safely. Things were looking good for Frederick Barbarossa, who only had to pass through the allied Armenian Kingdom of Cilicia before taking his still large army into the Holy Land. He never made it, though, as he died in the Salaf River in Cilicia. Sources disagree. His horse may have thrown him while he was crossing and he drowned. Or it's possible that he was simply bathing and the nearly 68-year-old man, who had just marched probably 2,000 or so miles and fought several battles over the past few months, had a heart attack and died. Either way, he never made it to Syria for the second time, although his army did. His son Frederick took command of the crusading army and marched south. The army suffered greatly from malaria, and it was while they were besieging the city of Acre that he succumbed to it as well. The crusaders eventually took Acre after the arrival of the kings of England and France. 
Back in Europe, though, Barbarossa's heir, Henry IV, was dealing with some turmoil of his own. But his German throne and imperial crown were secure, thanks to the work of his father. Frederick Barbarossa came to power at a time when the emperor was considered little more than a figurehead. The princes of Germany ruled without much attention to their king. Italy was fast turning away from being a part of the empire, and Rome ruled over its king, not the other way around. But by the time of Barbarossa's death, according to Picot, quote, the empire had recovered all its splendor. Never before had its honor shone so brightly. Never before had it been so venerated and feared. No emperor since Charlemagne and Otto the Great have been so brilliantly successful, none so admired and revered, unquote. Barbarossa, as king of Germany, did not have the royal lands that other kings did, and it is unrealistic to think he could have pulled together a centralized state. But he did make the role of the leader of the Holy Roman Empire something important and powerful, an idea that seemed outdated when he took the throne. He was able to wrangle the German princes without incurring rebellion, something his predecessors could not manage. Giving the German princes more power, he seemed to both further decentralize the kingdom while paradoxically adding to his own power and prestige. After his death, the Hohenstaufen family continued to rule over the empire and increased its power and influence. Next episode, we'll look at the rule of the empire by Henry VI, who had some successes but did not live long enough to be truly influential, and the period of civil war that followed Henry's death, before we conclude this three-part series with another Holy Roman Emperor, another Hohenstaufen, another Frederick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>